Romans chapter 1, verse 7 goes like this. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy family, holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's longest letter, his longest letter. We uh, spent a few years ago, we spent time in, the, uh, in 1 Corinthians, which seemed really long. This one's longer. And it is beefy. It is heady. But what we did last week is we kind of set up a little bit of the context. And if you missed some of that, we've got a podcast, you can catch up. Remember, the Jewish Christians who were part of the house churches in Rome had been kicked out of Rome by Claudius in the year 49. Five years later, Nero lets them back in to Rome. So imagine if half of our church got kicked out of Denver and five years later got to come back to Denver and we gathered again. Imagine if you were the kicked out crew and you came back and everything seemed really different. Like the things you used to do together uh, changed because, well, you're a Jewish follower of Jesus and the Roman followers of Jesus, the Gentile followers of Jesus, just kind of started doing things without that kind of Jewish element to it. And it felt different. We talked about how these house churches in Rome were siblings um, in Christ, but they were so diverse, rich, poor, slaves, freedmen, women, men, Jewish followers of Jesus, Gentile followers of Jesus. And so imagine this dynamic. Paul's letter to this group of people is fundamentally about how to live as a family of God in unity in the middle of empire, in the middle of Rome. It's a way of life with God and each other. That's fundamentally what this letter is about. Concrete, real situation in which it was written. Remember, Paul did not write the letter to the Romans thinking one day this would be in the New Testament right after the book of Acts. He had no concept of that. He was literally just encouraging this group of believers he had never met before, never been to Rome. He didn't plant the church in Rome. Unlike Ephesus and Philippi, he didn't plant the church. The church kind of planted with other people we're about to meet. But Paul's sending a letter to them because he knows two things. One, he wants to go and visit them, and then he wants to use that as a jump-off point to go to Spain. And he wants to tell them about what's happening in Jerusalem and how there's this huge offering going to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And he wants to encourage them. He knows what's happened. He knows that half of them got kicked out of Rome and then half of them, then they came back and that it's kind of weird and it's kind of, there's a power dynamic. He knows this. So he's writing them a letter because he loves them. Pure and simple. Romans then is not a letter about your and my personal salvation story. It has that in it. But it's not primarily that. 
It's not a schema for how do you go to heaven when you die. It's about living in community at peace with each other in the midst of empire. And we talked about what empire is last week. We talked about how empire is power. It's uh, social strata. It's money. It's status. And we live in empire. We live in that. It's the air we breathe. And the reality is all of us walk through these double doors every Sunday with different backgrounds, different hurts, different needs, different fears, different doubts, different regrets, different trauma. And we all have issues that we are avoiding we all have false scripts in our heads about things that are true and, and, and that we're living by. And the empire that we live in with all of that stuff, all of our different perspectives, we live in an empire. We live in a, and I'm not saying that just like America is an empire. I'm just saying that there's so much forming us from the outside, trying to get a good physique, trying to have a perfect family, trying to get success career growth, experiences, notoriety, all that stuff we're swimming in. Now for today, that was just a small little background from last week. For today, what what I want to do is, in order for us to see what it has to say to us, this book, this letter, Romans, we have to investigate what the letter had to say to them first. And this is why context is so critical. We find almost all of the context for why Paul wrote this letter in the last chapter, chapter 16. And the problem is, let's be honest, most of us don't read that chapter. (laughs) We start in one, and we're like, dang, this is heavy. And then we get to like Romans 8, and we're like, oh, that's better. And then we kind of trail off around Romans 12. But Romans 16 is why he wrote it. And so we are going to start backwards. We're going to start from the end and go backwards. Because we're tempted to read this book about individuals. And for individuals. But it's for the church. It's for the we So we have to ask, what's the context? The local church in Rome, we're about to find out who they are. It's for the church. I want to read you a quote from a a scholar that we've been reading in kind of preparation for this teaching. A guy named Scott McKnight, he writes this. It is for many an irresistible temptation to make Romans abstract systematics, theology, or philosophy. Romans 1 through 8, or Romans 1 through 11, becomes Christianity's first abstract theology. Those chapters become timeless theology. Their ties to the house churches of Rome ripped from their hooks. 
Many are so worn down by this approach to Romans that by the time they reach chapter 12, they breeze through the rest as compulsory, unimportant information. The best commentary, commentaries barely escapes this temptation. And this is him talking. So I have chosen to read Romans backwards in order to demonstrate that this letter is a pastoral theology about privilege and power in search of peace in the empire. So much happening. And if we don't pay attention to it, we're going to miss what it has for us. And once we understand the power dynamics going on in Rome and the structure of Roman life, we can actually begin to understand what Paul is trying to do, what he's trying to say, and what he's actually trying to say to us. And we've got to recognize that we typically read things through a distorted lens of individualism. You and I are used to reading things for you and I. E. Randolph Richards says this, I don't intend to read my modern Western biases into Roman. It is subconscious, unintentional, but pervasive and serious. For example, we Westerners don't usually sit around talking about the importance of individualism or how guilt is used to motivate us, which is a super huge Western thing, by the way. Yet somehow Romans seems to me to be a book all about my individual guilt before God. He's saying that when we read it as an individual, it kind of hits all those weird spots that we're formed to think about. And so the temptation is going to be for you and I to drift into that rut of reading Romans as an individual when it was actually meant to be read to a house church, which we're going to get into. A house church that's used to honor and shame and, and uh, patronage and this, this idea of, of curious honorum, which is a course of honor, which is about getting ahead, getting climbing the ladder in Roman society. So once we read it the right way, I think some of you are actually going to like it. I think you're going to actually like Romans. So we're going to start at the very end. And I'm going to invite Brad up um, because this chapter never gets read, rarely gets read on people's, like on your own. Um, It never gets read in church. I've never even heard a teaching on Romans 16. So we're going to read the whole thing. Brad? All right. Take it away. (laughs) Follow with me if you'd like. Is it up there? I'm not sure. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she's been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend, Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. 
Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, my dear friend, and my dear friend Statius. Greet Apellus, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother, a mother to me, too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings, and I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what's good and innocent, innocent about what's evil. Uh, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, and the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, and so does Lucius and Jason and uh, Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus, send you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Brad, well done. That was selfish of me to have Brad read that. Those names are crazy. So if you're looking for uh, some good names to name your child, some good ones in there. From this passage, we learn a lot about the church in Rome. We learn about who Paul is writing to. It's very personal. It's almost like it would just be like you hearing your name read in a letter. It's just encouraged, beautiful, especially in that day and age when no email, no, no letter. To get a letter as a community was a big deal. So let's start with Phoebe. Chapter 16, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Phoebe 
read the letter. Phoebe traveled from Sincrea, which is near Corinth, all the way to Rome. We don't know how, whether it was by foot, over land, over the top, or if she went by sea, which was dangerous. Either one was dangerous. She brought the letter with her. Many scholars think that she memorized the letter in case in travel she lost the letter or she was stolen or it was ruined. That she performed the letter, that she came and she stood up in front of the house churches. We don't know if it was one house church at a time or if it was all of them gathered and she gave them the letter. Not only did she recite the letter to them, but there were questions. I'm sure there were questions that came to her about what certain parts of the letter meant. She didn't just recite the letter and then sit down, but I'm sure she answered questions and interpreted. I'm sure she was a part of how that letter was put together. We read that Tertius wrote the letter, actually scribed the letter, but there was a group of people that probably had input on the letter. And Phoebe was one of them. Phoebe was a benefactor. And to be a benefactor meant that you were wealthy. And Phoebe, in the stratus of Rome, probably had enough money to care for a bunch of people, but she turned her patronage towards the church. She funded Paul. She funded others. Some people believe that not only was she the funder of the church in Sincrea, but she was actually the host of the church, hosted the church in her home, and led the church. Phoebe was a boss. Scott McKnight writes this, writers like Paul didn't hand letters over to schmucks to stumble their way through the letters. (laughs) Phoebe was no schmuck. She was a key part of the church. And we learn a lot about how things went because of her. What else do we learn? Well, we have a list of the names. I'm going to pop up here. Names in Romans 16, 1 through 16. So if you miss any of these, um, I like Rufus. I think that's a great name. Seven, well, 27 names. Um, the, the green ones are... Women, blue are men, male names. We know that out of the 27 people listed, um, and the the beauty of this, we get little stories of each one of them. Some of them were risking their necks. Some of them were imprisoned with Paul. Some of them came to Jesus before Paul did. Paul knew some of them. He didn't know others. Throw this next slide up. These are, these are just a little bit of, you know, we're just going to get some data points here. Jewish, Greek, and Latin are some of the names. We learned that this group is pretty multi-ethnic. We learned that this group is mixed up of people who are friends of Paul. Some of them are family connected to Paul. Some of them are leaders. Okay. And, and we learn a lot there. The next one is, I think, really, really important. 
of the uh, women, uh, men and women in uh, the list, 30% are women, 27 names in total, 70% are men, but of the leaders mentioned, 70% are women. <laughs> I just love it. So for when Phoebe shows up to read this letter, they're like, yeah, Phoebes, <laughs> of course. We've heard about you. It's beautiful. Uh, there's this here's the crazy, there's a little side note. I was, I was doing some research about some of these names. And, um, you know, I have a 1984 version of the NIV. Okay? So the, the, the 1984 version of the NIV changes the name Junia to Junius. I know, a little trickery. And here's why. Whatever was going on with the translators at the time, they were nervous of the line that said that Paul counted Junia as an apostle. Fortunately, they corrected that translation because Junia is a woman and she was counted as an apostle. Meaning, she saw the risen Jesus, and she was a part of making that message known throughout the world. I think Junia was a part of starting the church in Rome. We learn that this church is diverse. We learn that they are male and female, Jew, Greek, Latin, that there's a whole different group of socioeconomics happening in here. And um, there's some details that our scholars point out. I'm going to read you a, a quote from a guy named Michael Gorman. He says this, If the women are clearly prominent in the house churches of Rome, and that means Phoebe's voice would have been a common sound, it seems likely that slaves were also prominently engaged in the gospel work. Now, I've told you this before, but like, some scholars believe that up to 70% of the world was in some stratification of slavery. Some believe that household in Greek, those of, so if you had someone who was, in a sense, a slave for you, um, they, were, they were indebted to you, they were part of your household. So in the household of Aristobulus and in the household of Narcissus, which, unfortunate name, is an indicator of slaves. Whether those of indicate slaves or not, the presence of slaves in the house churches of Rome is certain. A few scholars consider Aquila a Jewish freeman. And if, if this is the case, we have a high-status Roman woman married to a former slave. The famous lines of Galatians 3.28 no longer, Jew, uh, no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or free, female, are a reality in the churches of Rome. And here's the last thing we know. We know that there were five house churches. So we'll pop this on the screen. These were actually specifically mentioned in the letter. Five different house churches. Now, say there was 25 to 40 people in a house church. That's about our size. And the last thing I want to mention before we get into a couple other little bits is this. In these first 16 verses, 
the phrase in Christ, of Christ, or in the Lord is used 11 times. It's literally what binds them together. The Roman world assigned people status based on their biological family, their wealth, or their success, where they were in the cursus honorum. But by calling other followers of Jesus in the church siblings, when Paul says, he's my sister, Paul makes them family. He kind of reorients people's basis for status on in Christ, okay? So this disrupts everything else. This is what it looks like to live at peace in the midst of empire. Everything changes. There's no more Jew or Greek, male or female, slave nor free. It's a whole different way to live. And so this multi-ethnic community that we've seen has this shared identity in Christ, and what, what unites them is they all have one true king. And they're no longer strangers, but they're family. And then in verse 16, it says this, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send their greetings. Um, this word Greek, uh, greet is aspazomai, which is not, hey, what's up? <laughs> it's actually a very affectionate greeting. So I would like you to practice your affectionate greetings with each other appropriately. Asking consent, right, Randy? Um, But here's the reality. They were under threat. These five house churches were under threat. And this is where we're going to end today. They were under threat. Just imagine. There's five different house churches. You've got this weird thing happening, these dynamics, just a few years after everybody's back together. They're trying to figure out how to be a family. They're, they're clashing. They're splintering a bit. And these five house churches are at the center of Rome, which is at the center of the Roman Empire. They are living in the epicenter of the most powerful nation yet on the planet. And there's just five little house churches with just some weird characters all meeting together, and they had a very big problem. These five house churches were filled with people. <laughs> yes. He wants these people, these human beings, with different opinions and practices and baggage and thoughts and perspectives and economics and race. He wants them to get along, to be a family. Not for kicks and giggles, because the gospel is in jeopardy if they don't. It's literally in jeopardy. It's, it's hanging by a thread if they don't. This is all there is. 
I said this last week, we have options, me and you. We are consumers in a very individualistic world, and there are many churches that I would recommend in the area. We have options. And if we tick each other off, we can kind of migrate to another place. It's just how it is. It's just how it goes. But here's the problem. You'll still be there. (laughs) You go where you go, it tends to be the case. And so the reality is, is what would it look like? What if you had no other option and you had to work it out? Here. See, the unity of this place influences the capacity for others to trust in an apprentice Jesus. Some would say it has everything to do with it. The, the gospel writer John says, um, you know, they will know that we follow Jesus by our, by our love and primarily for our love for each other. So from the outside looking in, I mean, this is how the early church grew. The early church grew. They're like, whoa, that looks beautiful. That looks how it should look. This is why Paul wrote letters to like the Corinthians. He wrote, uh, we know that he wrote two, but we think he wrote three or even four letters to them because they were jacked up and the way they were treating each other was not right. Side note, I find it interesting that Paul did not write a letter to Centrea, the church in Centrea. I think Phoebe had that place buckled down. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And Centrea was just right around the corner from Corinth. They're like, write it to them. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a side thing. I might be wrong. But let me, let me ask this question. It's kind of a long question, but I want you to think about it before we do the rest of this. How can hierarchy and power and privilege and status be conquered by God when the people who claim to follow God just live the same way as everybody else? That's a big deal for us. Paul says this in verse 17. He does this huge greeting and he encourages everybody, but then he gets to a a really important moment. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord uh, Lord Christ, their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery deceive the minds of naive people. Serving their own appetites. Listen, you and I all have opinions. Um, I tend to have strong ones, if you've noticed. Some are important in the grand scheme of things. Some are not. What we think to be our important convictions um, take an extreme, actually end up the enemy's plot to divide the church. Paul had no patience for people who caused division. And I think a church can handle a lot of things. It can handle liars and thieves, and it can handle addiction, and it can handle all the things. But it can't handle division. 
The problem is, is that you and I are literally formed in our context right now to pay attention to people who divide us. And they have YouTube and podcasts and platforms, and there's just a lot of that. It's built into our news cycle. It's a strategy. But if it happens in the church, we've, we've got to do something about it. The only component that matters is allegiance to the one true king, Jesus. That's the only thing that matters. And so then he has this final encouragement. He says, everyone has heard about your, pay, about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So there's a stark difference in the word peace. Peace for Roman society was something called Pax Romana, which meant peace through brutal force and conquering. Peace of Christ is different. It's countercultural to Pax Romana. It is the unity in relationships between people who are different, and that unity comes through the Spirit, not through human force. The peace of Christ is more powerful. How do I know that? Rome's gone. <laughs> it's gone. I mean, there's vestiges of Roman society that all kind of come through, but it's a gift. This peace of Christ is a gift. It is a gift given to us. It unites complete strangers to become family. And we receive it as a gift. And we lean into it as a group, and we live it. And so the unity of this place influences the capacity for others to trust and apprentice Jesus. A couple questions for us, and then I'll pray. What have your experiences, and I just want you to be thinking about this, and if you gather in a group this week, I want you to maybe talk about this. What have been your, your experiences been like in churches you've belonged? including this one. Were there any power dynamics? Were there insiders and outsiders? What was acceptable? What was tolerated? Where could we as a church family be susceptible to power and privilege? Where have you seen God at work in making peace in, in this community? I'll throw a third one in. Where do we need God to be at work in making peace in this community? I'm going to leave it there and I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you for the fact that we get to connect with this little church. I almost got tears in my eyes hearing those names read and those encouragements. And I confess how easy it is to just pass over sections of scripture like that. But you have something for us in this to wrestle out over the next few weeks. What kind of community do you want us to become? And where does that begin? Show us your way, Jesus. Amen.
So the early church uh, often used communion as, as a way of manipulation, right, in order to get things out of people, to, to, to withhold uh, grace from people, as if consuming communion was, was what not Christ alone. And, and the Reformation didn't really help that at all, because what we see in the Reformation is that the communion table is replaced by the pulpit. And even in the artwork of the Last Supper, we observe Jesus and his apostles sitting in a line, rather than what they actually did, which was to sit in a circle around and eat a meal together. And so communion, a lot of times for us, becomes something that we do. And that's not exactly right. Because communion, it's not as much that we consume this meal, but that it is consuming us and has consumed us. Right? We don't gather to do communion, but we gather because communion exists. We gather to celebrate and come to the table um, to celebrate our salvation, what God has already done to us, through us, and what God is continuing to do through us as a community. And so this is a taste, a reminder of what God has done for us and what God is doing through us. So Paul says it this way, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we have individual uh, grape juices up here and bread. There's gluten-free in the middle. Um, as you feel led, uh, please come and take and partake when you feel ready.